Well, it's my privilege to introduce to you uh, Dr. Stephen Ganschel. Uh, he uh, led our church through the Rekindle Marriage Conference, and I tell you what, I learned something about marriage, I learned something about myself, I learned something about my wife, and it was just a really, really helpful conference. And so all of us who went, we were blessed. I know some of you uh, weren't able to make it for whatever reason. We do have good news. It will be on our website if you want to download it and follow along. But it was just a great time to just have a, you know, some fresh outside insight to, to really help us uh, develop a marriage uh, that honors God, because that really is one of the foundational elements of all, all society. And so uh, it is my joy to reintroduce him to you all. He is a, the counseling pastor at Bethel Church, not that Bethel, different Bethel, in uh, Crown Point, Indiana. Uh, he's on staff with the Raining Grace uh, Counseling Center. You might know his mom, who's a minor celebrity in our circles, right, Julie Ganshaw. And, uh, and he's a man with uh, unusual amounts of wisdom and insight and experience, and so it's a privilege to welcome him today to share God's word. Hey, good morning. That's pretty good. Let's do it again. Hey, good morning. Ah, excellent. Those of you that were hanging out with us over the last couple of days, you kind of saw, I like to talk with you a little bit. The thing about um, going through God's Word together is it's a community experience. So this morning, even as I present to you from God's Word, this is going to be a community experience, and I want to invite you into it. So as a community, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's pray together. God, we're thankful to be in your presence. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us this place to be this morning. And we recognize, God, that you foreordained this in eternity past, that this is part of an ever-unfolding plan within the scope of creation. So, God, we come before you humbly this morning that you sought to create us. God, we come before you humbly because we're talking about the very first human institution that you gave us as a part of creation. So, Lord, as we contemplate a values-based marriage this morning, as we, as we contemplate an act of creation itself, and our role in exampling it, our role in practicing the greatest commandment to you and to one another. Lord, move in our hearts that we be stirred to have a firm foundation in the gospel and have it be evident in our marital conduct. Thank you for Flint Hills Bible Church. Thank you for its place in this community. God, may this be a place that is a bastion of hope in this community. We trust all this to you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a real joy for me to be here. I want to thank Pastor Dave and the elders. It's been great to get to know um, they and some of the staff and some of the really key volunteers that have made uh, the last couple of days happen to just gather with folks and really practically walk through um, application because we spent a lot of time in application. It's like, okay, here's a biblical principle. Let's go do something with it. Honestly, I have half a mind to break you into small groups right now and we're just going right back to work. But, but I won't do that to you this morning. We might not be fully prepared uh, to go there. I want to emphasize something on the front side. If you look at the screens, you're going to, say, you're going to see the words values-based marriage. But I'm going to recognize in advance not everyone in this room is married. These principles that we're going to talk about aren't just marriage principles. They are relationship principles. You're going to hear me emphasize the word relationship a lot. Because as you evaluate relationships with your parents, as you evaluate relationships with your friends, as you maybe as a single individual thinking about a future with someone, I want to equip you with really a metric, a grid, a set of lenses that you can look through and ask yourself the question, does this relationship reflect my values? So I want to note on the very front side, you do not have to be married, you do not have to have a family to benefit from our time together, and I'm going to ask all the teenagers in the room not to tune out right away. This is for all of us. You'll find that the ideas we're going to work through will be effective across the scope and spectrum this morning. If you joined us for the Rekindle Conference over the last couple of days, a lot of the concepts that I'm going to introduce to you this morning are not going to be new to you. You will have heard a lot of the words that we're going to talk about before. 
However, what I didn't have time to do in a conference setting when the goal is to break you down into small groups and have you actually wrestle with the tool itself is you don't have time to go into a deep exegesis. You don't have time to rip through the entirety of the Bible and really hone in on how and why and what, what, what led to that being said, what led to these four things that we're going to talk about being relevant this morning. So what we're going to do is a deep theological dive into some of the concepts that we worked through over the last few days. And yet, this will be tremendously, tremendously practical. My goal, my commitment to you, my endeavoring this morning is to have you leave with a new set of tools that you can take and leave in the park, you can use in the parking lot. I want you to leave this morning knowing my relationship or relationships can be better or different than they were when I walked in the door this morning. I can enhance the relationships that I already have. So my goal is for you to leave knowing a new way to apply God's Word in your life. It's a good thing to know the Bible. It is something very different to know what a given passage of Scripture means and then actually bring an ancient truth to life in modern times. And I want you this morning to leave knowing ancient truth is applicable for you right now. Not tomorrow, right now the moment you get in the car. So I am going to ask that you do something unorthodox. And maybe some of you do this already. I'm going to ask that you take notes. I'm going to ask you, now here's the thing, I scoped your bulletin. There's a notes page in there. But I know some of you crafty folks didn't bring a pen. So I'm going to do the dangerous, dangerous thing, and I'm going to recommend you get out your smartphone. And I'm going to recommend even further that you not open up your social media, and you not open up your email, and you not open up anything else but the Notes app. Because my goal today is to give you a system. A system that when you're in the heat of disagreement and conflict or tension and frustration, you're like, we got to stop right now, let's go back to the thing and work the tool. Because it's a tool. And it's a tool that if you work it right, won't fail you. But the only way you're going to remember the tool is if you have the instructions. Right? You're not just going to perfect, you're not going to use the tool perfectly every single time. It is good to have a foundation to refer back to. So I'm going to encourage you to write down some of the things that we're talking about. I'm going to encourage you to take notes that will be applicable to you. And you'll note bold things on the screen that I am thinking will be helpful. Because you see, in every relationship, not just marriages, but in every relationship, there are always four things, four specific things things that affect every relationship that we have that are evidenced in almost all of our communication and are very, very significant. I would submit to you those four things are these. Assumptions, presumptions, expectations, and values. And transparently, it is a breakdown in one of these four things that results in the biggest areas of relationship breakdown and is often associated with hurt or hurting relationships failing marriages, and broken families. That's really on the negative side of things, isn't it? Maybe you found that we're really a solid Christian family. There's a lot that's going right for us, but you know what? It sometimes feels a little nebulous. Like we're, we're doing it, we're going through the motions, things are okay, but it's like there's not a lot of continuity to what we're doing. It's typically a breakdown in one of these four things, or if we're being charitable, it's just that it hasn't been really clearly defined. So it just stays nebulous, it stays fluid, and while it's working, is it best? There's a lot of things in life that work, but may not be best. So we're going to unpack these things and examine the biblical realities of each one, and then what we're going to do after that is transition to how you use them. So that, again, you can leave knowing theology and how to apply it very specifically to your life. So the very first thing we need to know is what is an assumption? We use the word assumption wrongly, I would submit to you, all the time. An assumption is a thought or idea that is hoped for or accepted as factual, but with no proof. So where does something with no proof typically come from? Typically, it comes from inside of us. These are things that we simply want to be true. We desire them. We crave them. They didn't come from somewhere. They came from, from us. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. The thing, these, these assumptions that we have, we just, they come from within us. And they jump out 
from within us. Assumptions are a very specific thing. Now, we're in church, but there's a phrase about assuming, isn't there? It's unpleasant, but it's true. There's a reason culturally that that phrase exists. It wouldn't be attached to the word unless there was some truth behind it. Can we agree on that? There is a reason assuming is not wise. Listen to what the Bible says in a few places. Proverbs 18.2 speaks to this. It says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but doing what? Only expressing his own opinion. Proverbs 18.13, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Shame, that should ring in your ears. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Proverbs 24, 3-7, listen to what this says. It says, by wisdom, a house is built. By understanding, it is established. By knowledge, rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance, you wage war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. Well, what does that mean? That's a fascinating portion of Scripture. It means it would be by foolishness that a house is destroyed. It's by a lack of understanding that one would not be able to establish themselves, that without knowledge, rules remain em- rooms remain empty, and in willful ignorance, one has no might. There's no abundance in one who lives by their assumptions. Assumptions are dangerous. They only take pleasure in expressing their own opinion. They only hear what they want to hear. Have you ever talked with someone where they only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear? What happens when you start to tell them something they don't want to hear? Best case scenario, you watch their eyes glaze over and they tune out. Like, I'm, I'm present with you, but not really. And that's a lot of what happens. They're like, I don't want, I don't want to hear that. So I'm going to go somewhere else in my head. It's interesting, too, because assumptions are very subjective, which means that your thoughts or ideas that are based on nothing, these things that spring from us, they might change. And what does the Bible say about one who changes their mind? A double-minded man is unstable in all their ways. Assumptions, best-case scenario, are unwise. It is a rare, rare day where you will find an assumption work in your favor. But I think it's, it's interesting, too, if we're going to press this a little bit. Folly, Proverbs talked about, is an act of utter foolishness. But shame is something very different, and it's worth noting. We live in a culture where shame is a cultural buzzword, right? There are entire schools of counseling that are designed to help people address shame in their life. Maybe it's a thing that you yourself battle, and yet here we find in the Bible that assuming is a shameful act. When we hear something culturally that resonates from God's Word, our ears should perk up a little bit. We should suddenly start to pay a little bit more attention because that is a thing that is increasingly relevant to us. Listen to what Bible scholar David White says. He says, shame is what happens when we begin to identify directly with our sin and view it as what we are rather than something we do. Guilt and shame are very different. Shame is you identifying as sin. And we put a lot of emphasis on that. In fact, I have found, by having been in counseling practice now for more than a decade, that people, at times, they have grown to love their shame because it allows them to remain in a victim mentality. They are able to use shame as a crutch. This is my identity, but their identity isn't good. It's not healthy. It's actually almost self-condemning, if not spiritually self-harming. And they stay in a place that is actually worse for them than working their way out of the shame, than actually dealing with the thing that resulted in the shame in the first place. If I'm going to summarize the passages of of Scripture that we've briefly touched on here, I think the Bible tells us that one who assumes often engages in foolish error and risks shameful activity. I think the takeaway from that, because we could camp here for the next 40 minutes, The takeaway here is this is a sobering reality and we need this on our minds so that we can go to the next thing. What is the next thing we need to understand? It's a presumption. There's a big difference between presumption and assumption. And right now as we talk about this, you may already sense, boy, there's some subtle shifting in my language that might be helpful. A presumption is a thought or idea that is hoped for or accepted as factual with some proof. 
meaning it's a thought or idea based on something. There is a reason behind which you think the way that you do. There is a reason, whether good or bad, that you think the way you do about a given matter. Whether it was experiential, you experienced it yourself, you observed it from someone else or otherwise, it's the reason behind the thing that you're doing. Maybe it's because you saw something a certain way as you were growing up. You saw your folks do it a specific way and you're like, well, it worked for them, it's going to work for me too. True story. I once had someone tell me that they desired to have the life that they saw on TV watching the show and quote, Grey's Anatomy. Can you imagine wanting the lifestyle of someone on Grey's Anatomy? But yet that got said to my face and I'm kind of like, hmm, hmm. That says a lot about their paradigm. That says a lot about their worldview. That says a lot about their value system. People have presumptions from all over the place. People want things from all over the place. The important thing about a presumption is it's not inherently right or wrong. It is simply the place that the information comes from. So let's take a harmless example that might be relevant to some of us. Maybe you grew up in a home where the timing of dinner was very specific. Maybe you were raised in a family where you were home at 5 o'clock and dinner was served at 5.30. And then when you entered into a relationship and then subsequently got married, you kind of maintained that expectation that dinner will always be served at 5.30. Is that, is that wrong? Was it wrong to presume, well, dinner will still be at 5.30? No, not really at all. But it certainly represents a lack of communication. The thing is, there was a factual reason behind which you think the way that you do. And I think this is where we see at times in relationships we start to get into trouble. Because we have presumptions, they come from somewhere, but because they're just kind of latent to our mind, we don't spend a lot of time communicating them to our spouse. It's just kind of the way that it's been. It's just kind of what you grew up observing. It's just kind of what you experienced, and as a result, it created something else that we'll get to here in just a moment. Thankfully, the Bible does not leave us alone in presumptions, and it gives us a lot of great examples about how to weather presumptions and understand the context of a given decision-making process. So what I'm going to invite you to do is find the book of Esther. Esther, you're going to actually find, is near the front of your Bible. Basically, you want to look for the uh, book of Psalms and then like, flip it a little earlier. You'll run, you'll run right into it. Esther actually takes place at the end of the Old Testament if you're looking at a chronological Bible. And it, it, I think it takes place about 450 or 500 years before the birth of Jesus, which means it puts it approximately 50 to 100 years before the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence between um, the book of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospels. That's good because that tells us where in history we are. We are after David, we're after Solomon, we're after Babylon, and now the ruling superpower of the day is Persia but it's before the Roman Empire, okay? So we're kind of at that spot in biblical history. And what we find with Esther is the story of a Jewish girl who became the queen of Persia. And what she did is she saved the nation of Israel from a plot to utterly destroy the Jews by a man named Haman. Esther is a very intense story. The parts involving presumptions, we're going to find in Esther chapter 4. So if you want to flip over to chapter 4, that's where we're going to find ourselves. In Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we run into Esther's uncle, Mordecai, who is very important to her. Mordecai learned of Haman's plan to kill the Jews and eliminate them entirely. So what Mordecai did, himself a Jew, very distressed about this, as he put on sackcloth, he tore his clothes, he put dust on his head, and he went around kind of making an unpleasant skeptical and ended up hanging out in a gate, which got observed by uh, some of Esther's servants. Remember, Esther's the queen. Obviously, the queen's going to want someone kind of keeping an eye on her loved ones when she's off doing queenly things and they're off doing other things. So they report back to Esther, Mordecai is in distress Go and find out what happened. So Esther sent some servants to Mordecai to find out why he was so distressed. And in the verses that followed, Mordecai briefly describes to her Haman's plan to kill the Jews. And then in verse 8 of chapter 4, Mordecai tells Esther that she needs to go to her husband, the king, and appeal on behalf of Israel. Let's pick up right there, starting in verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, 
all the king's servants and all the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes before the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to go to the king these 30 days. 30 days she had not been called to go and see her husband. Now we could read this and we could read into it and see that Esther was reacting in fear. But if we actually look more closely at the book of Esther, you'll see that there was something else very concerning taking place here. In the larger context of the book of Esther, and we don't have time to go through the whole of it, but it's important that you know this, there was a previous queen before Esther. And at one point, the king asked the previous queen to do something, and she refused. In the context of what happened, it was a good thing that she refused. But all the same, there were consequences. The consequences were not great for her. But it resulted then in Esther becoming the queen subsequently of Persia. She knew what had happened to the last queen. She thought she had a thought or idea that was based on something. She rightly presumed that he may be displeased with her for coming before him and it may result in her death. She did not want to go in front of the king to ask such a massive request unless it was absolutely necessary. Now here's the thing. Can we understand Esther's concern? Can we see like, why she would be slightly concerned to go before her husband. It's kind of a big deal putting your life on the line, even if it's for a bunch of other people. The reason I bring that up is because she was hesitant at first. You see that in the text. Have you ever had a thought or idea based on something and you were a little hesitant about it, but it was still the right thing to do? Like We see that presumptions can be very real in our lives and have very tangible realities that are associated with them. Not every reason for thinking or doing something is wise. There are plenty of reasons why people do things that are very foolish and very unwise, but they had a good reason for doing them in the first place. I mean, it's the phrase, accidents happen. Does that make sense? Presumptions are not inherently dangerous, but they're very important to understand. Sometimes knowing the reason behind something makes all the difference in the world and can stop a fight from taking place. So with presumptions, it breeds an opportunity for communication. We're going, to come back, we're going to come back to that because there's another thing we need to understand. Expectations. Expectations are the belief that something could or should occur based on perceptions, presumptions, and or assumptions. Honestly, this is really just a fancy way of saying this is how it should be. And in Christian relationships, in relationships that are founded on the gospel, we have ideas in our mind, this is how it should be. But there's a lot of times when we as believers in relationships find things that they, they aren't the way they should be. Think about the relationship that David had with his son that he wrote about in Psalm 13. Psalm 13, 1 through 4, David wrote, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? That's his son. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest, my sleep, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Let me say that again. Lest my son say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes, my son, rejoice, because I am shaken. David was saying, this is not how it should be. Help me understand. Help me understand. Consider Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 1 and 2, Habakkuk is witnessing the persecution of Israel and he doesn't understand what's happening. Habakkuk cries out to God. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is like, God, you made all these promises to Israel, all of them. They go back a long time. Why are we not seeing justice? Why are we suffering in this way? This is not how it should be. 
How about Job and Job's friends? They all believed that Job had committed an egregious sin. They expected, based on their knowledge of God to that point, that God blessed the obedient and God punished the sinful. And given all that Job had lost, they expected he had sinned so badly that God took everything away from him, that God was punishing him. Or maybe the Pharisees. In their earliest of encounters with Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees are correcting Jesus and his disciples for picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. They expected from a man so great a teacher, so pious as Jesus, that he would certainly obey the law. Like, he clearly knows the law. They expected that he would follow the law. And what they had done here is they thought that they had uncovered like a fly in the ointment of Jesus in these early days. They thought they could use this to kind of bring Jesus in line all before their relationship got overwhelmingly contentious. And what Jesus did is actually corrected the Pharisees here for their lack of understanding. Their expectations were well-founded. That's the thing. The expectations of David, the expectations of Habakkuk, the expectations of Job's friends, the expectations of the Pharisees, given their knowledge at that point, were all well-founded. And that's very often the case in our relationships. We have expectations that are well-founded. We expect that because something was one way at one point, it will always be that way, or it will certainly be that way next time. We expect that if someone says that they're going to do something, that they're going to follow through on it. We expect that I will always be able to make the same amount or more money. We expect that because we prayed before bed, we prayed as a family, we prayed when we were dating, that we will always pray. That if they spoke love to me at one point, they will always speak love to me that way. We expect, and I'm going to go slightly PG here, but I'll be careful. We expect that if that one thing, whatever that one thing is, happened all the time, that that one thing that happened maybe while we were dating would happen continuously in marriage. We expect that if our children, for example, know to turn off the light, load the dishwasher, do the chores, not hit their sibling, that they'll simply turn off the light, load the dishwasher, do the chores, and not hit their sibling. Can I get an amen? Ellie. Just meet my expectations. Meet my expectations. This is how it should be, right? You, do you have expectations? We, we all do. And again, some of the problem is that they're, they're nebulous and undefined. The thing is, we have expectations. We have them. Go, come with me here. We have expectations because at one point, our expectations were met. Your expectations don't come from nowhere. Something led you to think, this is how it should be. Does that make sense? This is how it should be. So what I want to do is help us transition all of this into something useful. What I want to do is turn our attention to values. And this is where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time. What are values? Values are the single most important thing to bolster your relationships in life. I dare say values are among the most important things in all of life because values affect every decision, affect every presumption, and affect every expectation we have. It's from our values that will dictate if I'm going to yell at my spouse or children to get what I want. It's from our values that will dictate, am I going to go 37 in a 30? It's from my values that are going to determine, am I going to fudge on my taxes to save a few bucks? From my values, they determine if I'm going to pursue the best in my spouse when they do not deserve it. From my values, I'm going to justify how many hours I work to prevent me from having to go home and deal with my family. It's easier to deal with work than it is to deal with my family. From my values, I'm going to determine if I'm going to pursue the right perspective about my circumstances. From my values, it's going to determine if I rationalize and justify my behavior, if I'm going to just try and explain it away. It's from my values that I determine what I will do and what I am willing to do when no one is looking. Our values dictate everything. So what are these mythic values? 
Values are our core beliefs. They're the core beliefs of oneself, a personal set of standards, principles, and codes that one judges as important to their lives. Their principles are codes that you hold in high esteem and you have a high conviction of. These are your corest of core beliefs. And the Bible talks at great length about our values. I'm going to go to a few unexpected places because we kind of tend to hamstring biblical characters into a, like an archetype. We hamstring them into like either the single worst or the single greatest action that they ever did. So let me just highlight a few for you. For a positive example, okay, let's go to Genesis 29. You don't have to turn there. I'll just describe it to you. In Genesis 29, we find Laban and Jacob. Laban was Jacob's uncle and he entered into an agreement with Jacob to give him a wife. And what Jacob had to do was work for Laban for seven years so he could marry his daughter, Rachel. Well, Jacob worked for seven years, but Laban did not hold up his end of the deal and ended up giving Jacob his older daughter, Leah, first. Jacob, in this situation, lived by his values. He honored the agreement that he entered into, and Laban did not. In fact, Jacob had such integrity, at least at this point in his life, and again, it's easy to hamstring Jacob into a one bad act or one good act because he's been known for a lot. But Jacob had such values at this point that he worked for another seven years to actually do the thing that he had purposed to do in the first place, and he did all seven. He worked a total of 14 years to get what he wanted, to get what he desired, to get what he had purposed in his heart and believed that he should do. For a negative example, we could jump up to Acts chapter 5 where we find Ananias and Sapphira and their value of holding money back and being deceptive. They had sold a parcel of land and they represented themselves as being so pious that they were giving the whole of it to the church. That did not end well for them. The point was they, their values dictated their decisions. They kept some of the money but wanted all the praise. We can go to countless places in the Bible to see people who made wise and foolish values-based decisions that were reflective of their true core beliefs. You have to understand, you can have a stated value, this is what I'm saying, and an actual value. This is what I do. I value, I believe, I should read the Bible and pray every day. But I do it maybe once every two weeks, typically in the car. How do you read the Bible in the car? It's magic. <laughs> I listen to it. I listen to it with a version app. These, we can have stated values and then actual values. Any standard, any core belief system that is in conflict with a God-centered hermeneutic, any belief that you have that is inconsistent or results in any kind of sinfulness is destined to let you down if not fail entirely. Any core value that you have that is not in line with God's word will let you down or fail you. And how often do the things you want that are not quite right fail you at the most inopportune times? What that is, is the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your life saying, hey, I'd like your attention. And maybe this morning what you're sensing is the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart, knocking on the door of your mind. Remember Romans 8 talks about the renewal of your mind. The Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your life saying, hey, I like your attention. Because this is where relationships get in trouble. Because values are completely wrong. Broken values, broken core beliefs, or compromised core beliefs lead to unmet expectations. Unmet expectations lead people to, to form wrong presumptions or assumptions on a given matter. And then, or worse yet, you're really not living by your values at all. Maybe you have them, but because they are so compromised, it is as if you don't. Maybe you do not make enough money, and yet you spend as if you have double the income that you do. It is a compromised value all the time. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you functionally live like you don't care. It is one thing to say you believe something. It is something entirely else to willfully, intentionally, consistently choose to sin and do the wrong thing. So what ends up happening in a situation like this is we work these things backwards. We work them in this order. We start with our assumptions. 
we start with our thoughts or ideas that are based on us. They come from just us. And our assumptions then, they form our presumptions. Our thoughts or ideas that are based on something is still just us. And then our expectations, this is how it should be, where do those come from? Well, if our assumptions start with us, our expectations come from, or our presumptions come from us, our expectations will be founded in us. What do we do? It's at that moment, it's typically here, when we find that our assumptions, our presumptions, and our expectations have all but failed us, that we finally remember our values. When your relationship is an absolute disaster, when you're not communicating well, when you're sleeping in separate beds, when you have a child-centered home so you avoid talking to one another, we finally remember, maybe we should pray. Maybe we should uh, talk to somebody. We finally remember spiritual disciplines, but it is only after we have already made an absolute mess of everything. We made the mess first. We compromised everything first. And this is what happens too often. The thing is, it typically isn't like this catastrophic thing that happens all at once. It's like slowly sliding down a hill. Maybe when you were in high school or in college, maybe you went right out of school into the workforce and you found that you were striving to live your best life now. You were having a lot of fun. Maybe you were sleeping around. Maybe you were making good money. And the thing is, when things are going really well in life, you start to esteem yourself highly. And maybe during that time, you enter into a relationship with someone, and because you kind of think you're a big deal, being with you is kind of a big deal, isn't it? And what happens is, as you kind of esteem yourselves as kind of a big deal, maybe compromise begins to become pervasive. Because if we're all kind of a big deal and we're living our best life now, yeah, I believe God's real. Sure, for sure. Yep, I go to church on Sundays. That's great. I don't really pray often. I don't really read the Bible often. I have values. I believe all that stuff. But it's like, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Isn't that enough? I, I believe just enough. But then you think, well, okay. Maybe this is going well enough. We should get married. But what happens? What happens is because there was a lot of compromise on the front side, when you get married, do you expect that suddenly all of your values are just going to kick right in and everything is going to be the way that it should be? But what started as maybe a once or twice compromise became a lifestyle. That lifestyle doesn't suddenly switch when you stand up in front of a bunch of people and say, I do. What happens though when you get married is you're like, well, you know, maybe now that I'm married, maybe now that we're like, we've committed to this thing, we've kind of gotten through that phase of life, maybe I don't have to do all that stuff anymore. Maybe we don't have to spend money the way that we used to. But what if it's only one of you that thinks that? Maybe I like to drink. Oh, but you don't want to drink anymore. Oh, no. Maybe it's, well, we kind of did that before we got married. Why aren't we doing it after we got married? Well, I don't think we should have to do that anymore. We're together now. Like, we can do other things. But I kind of expected that it would be this way. Or maybe, maybe you started to have kids. But you still want to go out and do stuff. But you can't. Because you've got kids now. And what started off as a breakdown in values, what started off early on, and just like, I want to live my best life now. I want to do everything that I can. What started off as just a series of small decisions over time, as a little snowball often does, rolled into something really big. And then you start to think about your values again, but you realize we never really functioned with our values in the first place. They were stated, but they weren't practiced. You knew them, you believed them, but they're not an active part of your life. And now you don't know what to do. That is how trouble begins. That is where trouble culminates. Or maybe it's just a little bit different. Maybe your relationship started awesome. And maybe things were going so well, you had great spiritual disciplines, everything was the way that it should be. Your, your expectations were on point. But after you got married and you settled into a routine, it became just that. It became routine. You got bored. You stopped investing. You stopped loving your spouse. You stopped loving your kids. You stopped desiring the values in your life because they became mundane 
because they've not really been maintenanced enough. That's why I start with these four words when I do any kind of pre-marriage, uh, marriage conference-esque type things, broken marriage counseling, and this today. Because what starts as something small, what starts as the realization that I want what I want more than I want what someone else wants, more than what someone else wants, very quickly snowballs into catastrophe. It very quickly snowballs into a lifestyle of pain. It snowballs into a broken relationship, and I'm not pointing out anything in the room, but this is something that I see commonly. It's reflected in something like, and again, let me just note, I'm not saying this about anybody in the room, but it, res it results in having like your kids sit between you. It's a fascinating thing where it's like, your kids are sitting between you and your spouse. How do, well, we're just, we're watching them. We're going to make sure that they don't act up. All the teenagers sitting between their parents. <laughs> But it starts slow and very quickly picks up speed and you realize because we never practiced godly values in the first place, we don't actually know what to do to get ourselves out of this. So how do we do that? I am going to provide you this morning with a biblical system and we're going to put these things in the right order. You have to first determine your values. The things in your life that are broken, the things in your life that might be nebulous, the thoughts or ideas that you have that are based on something need to just be a bit more clearly defined. We need to stop allowing the snowball to keep rolling because you don't know what else to do and literally just do something else. This is baby step number one. We're going to find the origin of this in Matthew chapter two, verse 22, excuse me, verses 37 through 40. This will be a very, very familiar passage of scripture to you. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. This is of highest significance. If our relationships and marriages and parenting are to reflect our core values, it has to start with the single greatest value that God has given us. Our primary value must be to love God first. Not yourself, not your spouse, not your kids. Love God first. To love God with everything in you. Every moment of every day. Because it's when we make exceptions that we start to operate from our assumptions. When you make an exception to loving God first, you are loving someone else first. It's not always you, maybe it's an idol of some kind. But exceptions are the road back to the snowball down the hill and back to relational destruction. I want to ask you a hard question. Just uh, right now, this is healthy heart check right now, all of us together. Where do your values come from? It's easy to say the Bible. It's easy to say Christians. It's easy to say, uh, I watched my Christian parents do it. It's easy to say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. One of the most uncomfortable realities that I'm seeing over and over and over and over again as I meet with scores and scores of people, you've got to understand that throughout the better part of last year as the pastor of counseling, I would sometimes start my day at 8 o'clock in the morning last April with a Zoom call, and I would finish my last call of the day at like 11 p.m. or midnight in a Zoom call. And that was a fairly seamless day of video calls, meeting with professing Christians, many of whom struggled to relate their orthodoxy, their faith, to orthopraxy, their life. So I see what I am about to say to you with a level of vivid technicolor that could only be described as real life. Do you really believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you really believe in a way that changes you that God became man and dwelt among us? Because James 2.19 reminds us of a very uncomfortable reality. Even the demons believe. There's universal awareness of God. Are you aware of God? And is awareness of God influencing your value system? Or do you believe in God? Because if it's just awareness, that is one of the reasons your biblical values will fail you. Because you don't really believe it. And if you're not really going to believe it, you're not really going to do it. Belief 
changes how you think. Belief penetrates your heart. Your values, if they are God-focused first, if you are practicing the greatest commandment, penetrate your heart and emanate from what you do. It's not a duty that you walk out. It is a lifestyle of desire that you live out. And that is a very different thing. It leads you to not say things like, this one time won't hurt. That's a compromised value. It leads you to say, it's not like I have a bad habit. That's a compromised value. It's not like this is a pattern. That's a compromised value. Have you ever said God will understand? God will understand this one time. My spouse will understand. How often is your life characterized by compromised values? How often does compromise work its way into the way you think about every decision that you make? I would submit to you the very first thing that you need to do is prioritize loving God first. And if that's an area of repentance that is needed in your life, all it takes is a conversation with God. God, I'm sorry for not putting you first. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? You go to your spouse. I'm sorry for not putting God first in our relationship. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? It starts with an attitude of I love, serve, and honor God first. And then in my relationships, I will honor you as I honor myself. Because what happens then? When you start to think like this, when you start to love Jesus, you put things in the right order. When love for Jesus becomes a desire and a habit for you, you put things in the right order. Because too often, we're going to start with, again, broken assumptions and presumptions, and then we end up in the wrong place. But if we work the system the way that it's designed... If love for God is your primary value, if loving your neighbor as yourself is a primary value, if living out a gospel-centered life is a primary value, what's going to happen? Your values, your core beliefs about life are going to create your expectations. Your expectations, remember, are this is how it should be. I love, serve, and honor God first. That's how it should be. So every expectation I have should be reflective of that. But then remember that your expectations, they will then create your presumptions. Your presumptions are thoughts or ideas based on something. Your thoughts or ideas that are based on something come from your core values of I love, serve, and honor God first. Everything flows from adherence to the greatest commandments in all of Scripture, and it permeates how it is that you live, how it is that you have relationships, how it is that you and your spouse do life together. Your values will help you discern, should I even date this person? Like, we're not on the same page. Just because I like you doesn't mean I should be with you forever. Your values will help you make decisions in life about every relationship you have. And as couples, you need to have core common values that you communicate and live out often. So how do you do that? Here's the system. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you the means by which you can start this in the car on your way home. The first thing that has to happen if you have not been doing this already is you and your spouse have got, or you and your significant other, if you're in a dating relationship and there's been compromise, you've got to get right. You have to go to the person that you are in a compromised relationship or struggling relationship with and repent and ask for their forgiveness. I'm sorry for compromising my values. I was wrong for compromising my values. Will you please forgive me for compromising my values, our values? You acknowledge, I'm sorry. You own, I was wrong. You restore, will you please forgive me? You get right with your spouse or significant other. Second, you determine your values. They can't be nebulous anymore. You've seen nebulousness. You've seen how undef- like not defining things has led you to a place of like, ah, best case scenario, maybe things are a little wishy-washy. They're going well, but they could be better. You need to, the, the way to do this, I'll just tell you, the way to do this is you and, you and your spouse, you and your significant other, do it separately. Create your own lists of core values and then come together and talk. Put out, just write them down. What are my core beliefs about life? What are the core things that I hold dear to me? And then you get together and you talk about what are the core values that you have in common and you discuss the differences in your core values. An additional point is you could rank your values in order of importance, starting with love for God, love for each other, love for family, vocation, and on and on and on and on. 
Number three, ask good questions. Do not assume. That seems very straightforward. Presume. Presumptions are not facts. Presumptions are thoughts or ideas that are based on data of some kind. In order to validate that data, you need to ask questions. Specific questions solicit specific answers. Don't ask someone, why is that important to you? Ask someone, for what reason is that important to you? It's a much better question because it's precise. It invites someone to tell you the influence behind why they think what they think. I think another helpful thing here is if your communication struggles at times, don't try and put 20 pounds of communication in a five pound bag. Meaning, don't try and have a 90 minute conversation when you've only got the emotional bandwidth for 30. Don't try and solve everything in one sitting. Take some time, talk for 30 minutes, stop. Take a break, set another time. Have, have reasonable expectations of one another. Fourth, test drive your values. You might find that because these are precise things, you need to give them the opportunity to see if they work. So take a, take a month, take four weeks and implement a new value. Form disciplines around these values. Go to scripture and pair your values with an application principle from Proverbs or James or elsewhere. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit if you look. Do not stop after two days. Too often we're trying to form a new discipline and it's like, well, you know what? We've done this for 15 total minutes and it's failed, so we should just skip it. Four weeks. Commit to a month. You might find that things change significantly. And then last, revisit and refine as necessary. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but you change over time. Those of you that maybe are uh, middle-aged and upwards, you may, be a, you may have been very different people when you were 22. Those of you that are 18, you're different than you were 12. Your values change over time. The values that you have right now may be pre-kids. Nine months from now, when you've got a child, they'll be very different. So you need to revisit and refine them as necessary because what this does is it breeds healthy communication healthier expectations, and the ability to flesh out assumptions that need to be corrected. At the end of the day, the single most important thing that you can walk away with this do doing is defining your marriage value system, defining your family value system, for from it, expectations become clear, presumptions are found in the right place and you eliminate assumptions entirely, the less that comes from a heart that may be bent towards self-centeredness and sinfulness, the better. I commend to you a life of values. May God bless you to that end. Let's pray. So God, help our beliefs to be more than stated words. God, help our beliefs to be more than something we just say on Sundays or when we see one another throughout the week. God, help our core values to be reflective of who we truly are on the inside. God, may people look at us as Christians and see something different in us as Christians. God, that they see our value for loving you first and loving our neighbor as ourselves. God, help others see our relationships, our married relationships, as loving our spouse as we actively love ourselves. God, help us to be an example that other people aspire to in that way, that people see the gospel in how we treat one another, particularly in marriage and in dating relationships. So God, we trust this to you. We ask for your definitive movement in our hearts to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.